In this section of Luke chapter 2 that we have read, Luke follows baby Jesus in some of the most formative and revealing moments of his early life. We know Luke was a very careful historian, and everything he includes in his account of Jesus is to help us understand who he is from eyewitness accounts. At the same time, Luke is a very deep theologian, and so everything he includes in this historical account is of theological significance. Luke is concerned not just with the facts, but with their meanings. There are four episodes recorded here, four episodes we've read this morning, uh, all of which take place in the first 40 days of Jesus' life. Certainly there were other events taking place in these first 40 days that we learn in Matthew uh, that Luke does not record, such as the visit of the Magi and the flight down to Egypt. But the ones that Luke does record for us all fit together very well to give us a quite comprehensive picture of what Jesus came to do. That's really what Luke is setting us up for in this early part of his gospel. So we have his circumcision, we have his presentation in the temple, we have the meeting with Simeon, and we have the meeting with Anna. Now let's look at each one of these episodes in the life of baby Jesus. His circumcision is recorded in verse 21. This is obviously the eighth day of Jesus' life. It is commemorated on the eighth day of Christmas, which was yesterday. It's a neat coincidence for us that it falls on New Year's Day every year because it certainly is the beginning of something new when Jesus was circumcised. But we might ask the question, why was he circumcised? Well, go back to the Old Covenant. What do we know about circumcision? Circumcision was the sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. Under the Old Covenant, for young Israelite boys, circumcision confirmed their status as children of Abraham and members of the covenant people. Remember what God had promised to Abraham, that through his seed, that is through an Abrahamic son, God would bless the whole world. Going back to Genesis 12, we find those foundational promises. God promised to use Abraham's family as the instrument through which his grace and mercy would flow out to all the families of the earth. And ultimately, Abraham's offspring, that is his spiritual progeny, those who share in Abraham's faith and in Abraham's blessing, they would grow to become as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the grains of sand on the beach. Circumcision was a sign of all of that. Circumcision took place on the eighth day of a child's life to signify a new beginning. That is the day that marks a new creation, the beginning of a new week. And so it pointed to this new creation reality, this new heavens and earth that God had promised to Abraham. Jesus must be circumcised because he is the true son of Abraham who will bring in this promised new creation. In him, all the promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. Now, in the Bible, obviously not today, that'd be a different uh, discussion. But in the Bible, you need to understand circumcision is a symbolic castration. That's really clear in the book of Galatians, but it's actually clear if you go back to uh, the book of Genesis. And this is why circumcision is instituted in Genesis 17, right after Abraham tried to produce the promised seed in his own strength with Hagar. In Genesis 16, God institutes the sign of circumcision, basically to say to Abraham, don't try that again. Don't try to bring the promised seed in by your own strength. You cannot do it. Circumcision essentially proclaimed the flesh of man is weak. The grace of God is strong. The flesh of man cannot produce the promised seed. It will take the grace of God. 
Jesus' circumcision, like his baptism, was unique. In Colossians 2, Paul refers back to uh, Jesus' circumcision. In fact, he refers to Jesus' crucifixion as a kind of circumcision. He refers to Jesus' crucifixion as a circumcision, as a fulfillment of his circumcision. It is death to the flesh, death to life in the flesh. So an eight-day-old baby Jesus is circumcised. Think about this. It's the first time his blood is shed. And it points ahead prophetically to the blood shedding that will happen in his death. And therefore it points ahead to the spiritual family, not a fleshly family, but to the spiritual family that he will form through his death. That is the true family of Abraham, a family composed of a great multitude drawn from all the families of the earth. By shedding his blood, by giving himself up as our representative and substitute on the cross, he will make his people fruitful so they will multiply into a great multitude no man can number. Circumcision points ahead to the cross when all of this is fulfilled. Luke also indicates this is when Jesus formally received his name. That was the custom among the Israelites. The baby boy would officially receive his name on the eighth day when he circumcised. And of course, the angel had told Mary that his name would be Jesus. And so that name is officially given to him on this day. That name Jesus or Joshua in the Hebrew means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. Think of Matthew one twenty one. the angel even there connects the name of Jesus with salvation. He shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. How fitting is it? How fitting is it that he is identified as our Savior? He is named as our Savior the first time he sheds blood. Because that's what he came to do, shed his blood. He came to suffer and shed his blood in our place so we can be saved from death and destruction and despair. We can rejoice during this season of Christmas because he has won the victory on our behalf. He is our Joshua. He is the Lord's salvation. He is our champion. Even eight-day-old baby Jesus is showing himself to be the great deliverer and champion of God's people who will triumph through suffering and through bloodshed to bring salvation, to bring about the fulfillment of all God's promises. In his circumcision, Jesus comes under the law's yoke to keep that law for Israel, to bear the law's curse, to redeem his people. Think about this again. At his circumcision, this is the first time God in the flesh bled. God took on human form. God took on human skin and bones precisely for this reason. So he could bleed for us. That begins at his circumcision. His life of suffering on our behalf begins here. An uncircumcised Jesus could not have been Israel's Savior. He could not have been the new Israel. He could not have become Israel's Savior or the world's Savior. And so understand, Luke's not just recording a historical curiosity here. The event of his circumcision is a gospel event. It is integral to the gospel. Already as an infant, his body is bearing the weight of the cross. The cross is casting its shadow over his life, even on his eighth day. In fact, it's interesting. We haven't done this here. Maybe we should start. You know, the church used to sing hymns about Jesus' circumcision. I guess we've gotten too squeamish for that today. There's a Lutheran hymn about Jesus' circumcision that includes these lyrics. His infant body now begins the cross to feel those precious drops of blood that flow 
for death, the victim seal. That's what his circumcision means. Connect this with his cross. That's the eighth day of baby Jesus' life. Fast forward to the 40th day of his life. And everything else Luke records here happens on the 40th day. This is when, according to the law of Moses, Jesus was to be presented in the temple. Think about this. The infant Lord comes to his temple for the first time. We get to follow baby Jesus into the house of the Lord. All of this is done according to the law. Jesus, as the eternal God, is the lawgiver. But as man entering history comes under the law in order to fulfill it for us. Luke, in fact, mentions the law in verses 22, 23, 24, and then later in verses 27 and 39 in describing this event. Five times he tells us the law of the Lord is being fulfilled. Five times he points to the law as the reason for Jesus being brought into the temple. Obviously, he wants us to see even baby Jesus is on a mission to fulfill the Torah. This is why he came, to fulfill the law, to bear its curse for us. Here you see this emphasis on how everything is being done according to the law. Verse 23 quotes from Exodus 13. The law required a firstborn son in Israel to be offered to the Lord. And while this was done with all Israelite boys... Of course, it happens in a unique way with Jesus, just as his circumcision is unique. So his presentation to the Lord as a firstborn son is unique as well. He is holy to the Lord in a way no other Israelite ever has been. Clearly here, he is being set apart and marked out for a special calling, a special mission as the firstborn, not just of Mary, but as the firstborn of his father in heaven. Now, Luke also notes that purification was made for Mary according to the law. Leviticus 12 is cited here. Leviticus 12 required a woman to offer sacrifices to the Lord, a lamb if she could afford it. If not, two turtle doves would do. And the fact that Mary did this for her own purification should put to rest any notion of the immaculate conception or the sinlessness of Mary. Clearly, those things can't be squared with this reality of Mary offering purification. The fact that she offers the two turtle doves instead of a lamb indicates that Joseph and Mary were not wealthy people. Yes, Jesus was born a king, but he was not born into an upper crust aristocratic family. His family had that aristocratic heritage descending from David, but they're not living as aristocrats. He who was rich for our sakes became poor. The story of Jesus will be a true rags to riches Story. He comes in lowliness and in humility, and this is part of that. Of course, we could also say perhaps they didn't offer a lamb because they brought the lamb with them. Baby Jesus will ultimately grow into the lamb who will be offered for the sins of the world. But the real emphasis of this section is not on Mary and her purification. It's on Jesus The infant Lord coming to his temple. It's interesting, at the end of Luke 2, we read about a time when Jesus was 12 years old. So a little bit further into Jesus' life. And his family went to the temple for Passover, as was their custom. And when they departed, Mary and Joseph realized as they're on the way home that Jesus is not with their entourage. So Mary and Joseph certainly were not helicopter parents. When they finally found Jesus, they had to go back to Jerusalem to find him. When they finally found him on the third day, he was in the temple. And Jesus is astonished by this. He says, why did you seek me? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? 
Later on in Luke chapter 2, at 12 years old, he's going about his father's business in his father's house. But if it is his father's house, it's really his house, it's his temple. Even as an infant, the temple is his house. His going to the temple is a kind of homecoming. In fact, we'll see in just a moment when Simeon meets and greets baby Jesus. Simeon is in the temple, and when he takes up baby Jesus in his arms and sings over him, he calls Jesus, baby Jesus, the glory of the people of Israel. What was the whole point of the temple? It was to be a house for God's glory. The whole purpose of the temple was to house God's glory, the Shekinah glory dwelling in the most holy place. Well, Jesus is the glory of God. He is the true glory of God. He belongs in the temple. He ought to be worshipped there. The sacrifices offered there in the temple ought to be offered to Him as acts of praise and worship and devotion towards Him. The temple is His house. In fact, let's go ahead and look at that encounter with Simeon. This is the third episode. And really, you can see the third and the fourth episodes belong together, Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna really form a pair a double witness to who Jesus is. The Old Testament says any legal matter is established on the basis of two witnesses. And so here you have two witnesses to who Jesus is. They witness to Jesus in different ways, but complementary ways. Simon calling him Christ, Anna calling him Redeemer. Just as the original male-female pair in the Bible, Adam and Eve, were in a garden, so Simeon and Anna are in the new garden of the temple. And just as the Lord came to meet Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, so Jesus, Yahweh incarnate, is being brought to meet Simeon and Anna in the temple. But it's interesting, Simeon and Anna are both old. And that's because, in a very real sense, they represent the old covenant. They are among the last faithful representatives of the old Israel, the old order. They live to see the new by seeing baby Jesus, but they represent the old order. But as representatives of the old order, they point us to the new. It's interesting how Simeon is described. He is described as just and devout and as having the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So he is a promise-believing, law-abiding, Spirit-filled saint. A promise-believing, law-abiding, spirit-filled old man. He's been waiting patiently for the consolation of Israel. Obviously, the consolation of Israel is a way of referring to the Messiah. Why would the Messiah be called the consolation? Well, that could also be read as the comfort. He's awaiting the comfort of Israel. Simeon is awaiting the comfort God had promised. God had promised to bring comfort to Israel in the Messianic age. There'd be a new exodus, a a new return from exile, a new covenant would be established, and all these things would bring great comfort and consolation to the people of Israel. Obviously, Isaiah 40 stands in the background of Simeon's hope and expectation here. Through the prophet in Isaiah 40, the Lord spoke, comfort, comfort. He said, comfort, comfort, these my people. That's what Simeon has been waiting for. The one in whom Isaiah's words be brought to fulfillment. The comforter. The one who would bring and who would embody God's comfort. And how would this comfort come? It would come because he brings pardon, as Isaiah describes in verse 2. It's the comforter who would reveal the glory of God, as Isaiah says in verse 6. 
The Holy Spirit had informed Simeon that uh, he would live to see the Lord's Messiah. He would not die until he saw with his own eyes the Lord's Christ. And so the Spirit led Simeon into the temple on this same day Jesus' parents took him there so they could meet. What happens when they do? Simeon takes the child into his arms, he blesses God, and then he sings a song, probably a song he had been working on, composing for a long time for just this occasion, knowing it was coming. He sings a song. He sings over baby Jesus. He sings, Lord, now your servant can depart in peace. He knows the child who brings peace has Arrive. He goes on to sing, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared for all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon here is saying, Isaiah, his prophecy in Isaiah 49, 6, to, to bring light, that God will bring light to the nations through his Messiah. This will be fulfilled in Jesus. He'll be the servant of the Lord who brings light to the dark nations, fulfilling Isaiah 49. That's in the background of Simeon's song. He's going to fulfill the mission God gave to Israel. And that's something Luke is going to emphasize again and again and again. That yes, Jesus comes into the world as a true and new Israel. He comes as the one who will embody Israel. But that is in order that God's promises to the nations in the Abrahamic covenant will come to pass. And so Luke is always interested, not just in Israel, but in the nations. Indeed, all nations will be blessed with saving grace, with saving mercy. God will fulfill his purpose, his his plan in this way through Jesus. Again, this is something Luke emphasizes again and again and again. The angels in their song announced that Jesus came to bring goodwill to the whole earth. Listen to some of the Old Testament prophecies and promises about the nations that are in the background here. When Simeon sings about how Jesus will bring light to the nations and the angels have announced he'll bring goodwill to all peoples, consider some of the Old Testament background here. Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Psalm 72, yes, all kings shall bow before him, all nations shall serve him. Isaiah 54, your descendants will inherit the nations. Psalm 86, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. Psalm 102, so the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all kings of the earth your glory. Psalm 22, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Habakkuk 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You go on and on and on. There are so many passages, so many prophecies, so many promises about how when Messiah comes, he will be a blessing, not just to Israel, but to the nations. In fact, I find it really interesting. Luke has already, before we even get to this point, to the Song of Simeon, Luke has already situated the story of Jesus in a global context. Think about this. In the opening verses of Luke 2, you've got Caesar's census, his census decree, which reminds us that the nation of of Israel is part of a much larger empire. An empire that is really a conglomerate of nations. Caesar Augustus rules the nations, including Israel. Luke is setting the stage. Jesus then arrives as a rival to Caesar. As one who will be world 
emperor. It's interesting. Matthew's gospel really emphasizes how Jesus is seen as a rival to the localized rule of Herod in Israel. So, of course, Herod tries to wipe him out because he is a rival. But Luke shows us that Jesus' kingdom will go far beyond that. Here, even in the time of Jesus in the womb and in his birth, Luke is stressing the global mission of Jesus. He stresses Jesus' connection to David again and again in these early chapters. But, of course, that reminds us of God's promise to send a son of David who would have not just rule over Israel, but cosmic rule, who would rule from God's own throne. When Jesus is born, it is a host or army of angels that announce his birth using language very similar to the kind of language that Augustus, the Caesar, would use to announce the birth of his heir. Indeed, Augustus claimed to bring peace on earth, the Pax Romana, but the angels say that Jesus will be the one who brings peace on earth. Augustus, as the emperor of the world, claimed to be Lord and Savior, But those are titles that Luke continually puts on Jesus, even in his infancy. And Simeon makes it clear that the true king of the nations who will dispel their darkness and bring them salvation is this baby Jesus. He is the true world emperor and there is none other. Luke is making that clear even in Jesus' infancy. But Simeon isn't done. He has sung over Jesus, declaring him to be the glory of the Lord incarnate, declaring him to be the one who will bring light and salvation, not just to Israel, but to the whole world. But Simeon isn't done. He goes on to give a blessing and a prophecy to Mary. And the prophecy part of this is very interesting. It's a prophecy of coming division. He says, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many would be revealed. It's interesting here that Simeon prophesies about a sword, the sword of the Lord. Simeon is connected with a sword. The tribe of Simeon is connected with a sword back in Genesis 34 and 49. There's been this long history, this long association of Simeon with swords. Now it's going to be a different kind of sword. He's prophesying what the sword of the Lord will do. He speaks of a rising and a falling. Note the order there. Falling, then rising. This baby Jesus will grow to be a great offense to many. Indeed, to all who are proud, all who are haughty and arrogant will be offended by him. The Jews in particular will stumble and fall over him. Isaiah 8 had prophesied that many in Israel would stumble over the Messiah when he appeared. Psalm 118 says that he will become uh, the stone that the builders rejected. And thus they'll stumble over that, that, that stone. They'll stumble over him. But from Israel's fall into death, God will raise up a new Israel. That word that Simeon uses for rising is a resurrection term. Through Jesus, many will be raised up to new life. There will be a new Israel emerging out of the old. Simeon says Mary will suffer. Mary will suffer on account of her child. Mary's the one person who seems to walk with Jesus through all the highs and lows of his life. Mary's there, it seems, again and again in the hardships of Jesus' life from his birth. Think about this one. At the time of his birth, when he's... Uh, When he's born in a lowly stable, Mary's there with him, obviously, then, to his death. She's standing there at the foot of the cross as he dies. 
Of course, she's also there for the highlights. She's there at the empty tomb. She's a witness to his resurrection. She's present at Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out. So Mary will be cut deeply by the suffering she sees her son endure. And of course, any mother seeing her son endure suffering is going to suffer herself. Her own soul will be pierced with a sword. But Simeon tells her there's going to be a glory in all of this through the judgment that her son brings Many hearts will be exposed. Jesus will expose what is in the hearts of men. He will expose the wicked, the hypocrites, the pretenders among God's people, separating them out from his faithful ones. And so this, too, will be part of his salvation, this process of judgment. And that finally brings us to Anna, the fourth and final episode involving baby Jesus. Luke includes several details that would be unnecessary Unless he really wanted us to ponder them. Details about Anna's life, her marital history, her age, her tribal affiliation. These are all pretty unique details. Often these kind of things are not included. She is a prophetess, which means she could speak inspired truth given to her by the Holy Spirit. She had been a widow for a long time. uh, And actually, given all the details that we have here, she was probably a deaconess. A woman who ministered to other women who came to the temple. Her name, Anna, obviously links her with Hannah from the Old Testament from 1 Samuel. Remember the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel? She had been barren. She would go to the temple and she would pray and ask God to give her a son. She fasted and she prayed fervently. And then finally, God did give her a son, a son named Samuel. And what did she do with her son? She presented him to the Lord at the temple. So the Lord's house really, in a way, became Samuel's house. He went to live at the temple. Just as Anna is part of Jesus' presentation to uh, presentation of the Lord at the temple, we see there echoes of what happens with Hannah and Samuel. And, of course, that sets up a lot of connections. If there are connections between Anna and Hannah, then there are going to be connections between Jesus and Samuel as well. And you see those here. You see those play out. Uh, in many ways through the gospel. In fact, it's very interesting. The language that Luke will use at the end of Luke chapter 2 to describe Jesus growing, that he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man, that is borrowed almost word for word from the description of Samuel's growth in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So we're clearly on good ground in seeing these connections between Anna and Hannah and Samuel and Jesus. Anna is from the tribe of Asher, which really is a sign of hope. Because after Israel's exile, you don't hear a whole lot about tribal affiliations, especially for the northern tribes. Asher was a northern tribe in Israel, conquered centuries before by Assyria. It became known as one of the ten lost tribes of Israel. Here we see that what has been lost is being found. It's a hopeful sign of redemption and renewal for the nation. She's the daughter of Phanuel. His name means face of God. She has come from one named face of God and she is seeking the face of God in the temple and she will see the face of God in baby Jesus. In his face, she will see the face of God. She had been married seven years and then her husband had died. So she's been a widow ever since and now she is 84 years old. Those numbers matter. Numbers in the Bible even Often, literal historical figures have symbolic value, and that's almost certainly the case here. 
Married seven years, then her husband dies. That's a picture of Old Covenant Israel. That number 84, that's 12 times 7. 12 is the number of Israel. Think of the 12 tribes. 7 is the number of fullness or completion. She represents the fullness of Israel or Israel in the fullness of time. Her condition represents the condition of Israel. Israel's been widowed by unfaithful rulers, unfaithful kings, unfaithful religious leadership for a long, long time, just as Anna has been widowed for a long, long time. But within Israel, there is a faithful remnant ready to greet the newborn redeemer when he arrives. The book of Lamentations described Old Covenant Jerusalem after it had been destroyed in judgment as a widow. Jerusalem, indeed the whole nation of Israel, is described as a widow. Once great among the nations, now lonely and despairing. But the fact that Anna is a widow meeting Jesus, meeting the promised husband God is sending to his people, this means the widowed nation of Israel will get a true and eternal husband. A reversal of fortune is taking place through Jesus. You know, many throughout history have viewed widows as targets for exploitation. Widows as easy targets to exploit. Should never be so among the people of God, but especially you see here by Jesus being brought to this widow, it's a picture of widow Israel being cared for. Widowed Israel will be happily remarried and will have a husband who will care for her forever and ever and ever. They will live together happily forever and ever. We're told that Anna served God with fasting. Fasting communicated her longing, her deep longing for deliverance. Just like Simeon had been waiting So Anna has been waiting. She's been hungering for redemption. Fasting in the Bible can mean many things. It's a discipline that can be used in many different ways. But here, her fasting seems especially associated with calling on God in prayer to fulfill his promises. Calling on God to to answer prayers for deliverance. Fasting is a way of pleading God's promises. Physical hunger becomes a sign of your spiritual hunger for God. That's what Anna is experiencing. Her physical hunger is a sign of her spiritual hunger for God's redemption to be accomplished. We read she offers prayers day and night. This is her morning and evening sacrifice. She is continually crying out to God. And again, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, her eyes are open to recognize Jesus as the promised Redeemer. And so what does she do? She tells others about him, others who are also looking for the coming and promised redemption. She sees in this infant the promised redeemer. In his humility and weakness, she sees his glory and strength, and she bears witness to these truths. Now, what are we to do with this? If you take these four episodes in the life of baby Jesus together... What do you see? What is the bigger point here? Baby Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day. Baby Jesus being taken to the temple in the 40th day. What's it all mean? Well, obviously, everything here is foreshadowing what is to come later in the gospel. As we saw, his circumcision prefigures his crucifixion. The joy over baby Jesus in the temple will be matched by the disciples rejoicing in the temple over the risen Jesus in Luke 24, 53. 
that male-female pair that you have here in Luke 2 who bear witness to Jesus at the beginning of the gospel is matched by another male-female pair at the end, Cleopas and his wife, who have their eyes open as they walk with Jesus on the Emmaus Road and then in the breaking of bread with Jesus at the table. Everything here is foreshadowing what is to come later in Luke's gospel. Obviously, too, the things that Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna did are all things that we need to be doing. They kept the law. They worshiped God. They bore witness to Jesus. They trusted in his saving mission. They sang praises to Jesus. And if they could do so, if they could do these things when he was a mere baby, an infant wrapped up in swaddling cloths, how much more should we do these things now, knowing what we know on this side of his death and resurrection? They could do these things even when Jesus was an infant. How much more should we do them now that he's all grown up and he has died for us, he rose from the grave for us, he ascended into heaven for us? But perhaps at this moment... The most important thing for us to remember here is what Hebrews 13 says about Jesus. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what Hebrews 13, 8 says about Jesus. Now that's not to deny what Luke 2 describes about Jesus in his humanity growing and maturing. But the point is this. The character and the constancy of Jesus, the mission and the ministry of Jesus remain the same. Even from his infancy, you see that. His mission, his ministry, what it's all about. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to know that now. We need to cling to that, perhaps as never before in our lives. Because you know what? We live in a clown world, really. We live in a world that is full of foolishness. There is so much swirling all around us that is so chaotic. World is king, or so it seems. Those old institutions that once seemed like the bedrocks of our society are failing us. Our media, our politics, our educational centers, and yes, in many, many cases, the church as well. Who can you trust in today's world? The last couple of years have been exceedingly difficult. We live in an exceedingly confusing time. And as we enter into this new civic year, it doesn't look like any of that is going to get fixed anytime soon. We are in the middle of a big fat mess and there is no easy way out. But God is faithful. Jesus is unchanging. It's a new year, but we have the same Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our world does not remain the same. Our world is in a constant state of flux. But Jesus is the same. He has the same mission, the same purpose, the same ministry that he had from his very first moments when he was born into this world. There's a constancy there. There's a steadiness there. And that means the same Jesus who got you through 2020 and 2021 is going to get you through 2022 as well. This year won't be the same as last year. And we might say, well, we're thankful for that. Uh, But it could be much worse than last year. The world won't be the same. People won't be the same. Our nation won't be the same. Our culture won't be the same. The issues and problems and trials we all face won't be the same. But Jesus will be the same. 
Jesus is steady, constant, unwavering. What he came to do, who he is, and the mission he came to accomplish, it's been clear from the very first moments of his birth into this world. It has not changed. Who he is does not change. His love for you is unchanging. His grip on you will not change. His purposes for the world do not change. His rule over history, over all the nations, that's not going to change. His love and his grace for sinners, that's not going to change. His ability and willingness to bring comfort and consolation, that doesn't change. The strength that he gives to those who feel weak, the rest that he gives to those who are weary. That does not change. That's not ever going to change. Who Jesus has been and who he is right now is who he will continue to be. You can bank on that. You can bet your life on that. In fact, you must bet your life on that. You have to go all in on Jesus. And the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can't bank on anything in this world. You don't want to bet your life on anything in this world. You've got to bet your life on Jesus. You can trust Him. Your weary soul can find rest in Him. Your hurting and anxious mind can find calm and healing in Him. In Jesus you have and will always have Every spiritual blessing. In Him you have all things pertaining to life and godliness. In Him you have everything you could ever need. You lack nothing. In Him you have joy unspeakable. A peace that passes understanding. A hope that does not waver. All of that is yours in the Lord Jesus. Baby Jesus. Eight day old Jesus. Already embodied all of that. 40-day-old baby Jesus was already revealing all of that. Jesus in diapers, Jesus in swaddling cloths was already revealing God's glory and God's fidelity. Christ the babe is Lord of all. Christ the babe was born for you. People were already witnessing to and proclaiming his glory even then. Now, now that Jesus is all grown up, now that he has entered into the fullness of his glory as a mature ruler and a perfect man seated at God's right hand, how dare you not trust him? If Anna and Simeon could trust him, if they could entrust their eternal destiny to him as an infant, how much more? Should we be able to do so today? How dare you not trust Him? How dare you doubt Him? How dare you look anywhere else to have that void in your heart filled? We are in the midst of a great spiritual battle. This is always true, of course, for God's people. But sometimes it's more obviously true than at other times. We are in the midst of a great spiritual battle. And there will be many casualties in the church in this great spiritual battle. But Jesus promises triumph to his people. To those who keep looking to him and resting in him and trusting him and worshiping him. And so you want to go out there today and and the rest of this week and in this new year and you want to poke Satan in the eye? You want to stomp on his skull and trample him under your feet? 
very simple. Just trust and obey this Jesus. Who from his infancy just over 2,000 years ago, right up to the present moment, has done everything to serve his people, to do good to his people, to show glory and love to his people, to bring joy to his people, to bring you into that glory. Everything Jesus has done, he's done for you. So you want to win in 2022? You want to grow and mature and be useful to God in 2022? You want to withstand whatever hardships or trials or struggles come your way in 2022? You want to be able to depart this life in peace whenever that comes? Whether it's in 2022 or much further down the line, you want to do all those things, then trust in this Jesus who came into our world as a lowly baby to serve us and to save us. And throughout his whole life, worked to fulfill God's saving purposes. This Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This Jesus, he is your king. He is your savior. Pledge your loyalty to him. Live for him, even as he lived and died for you. This Jesus is your champion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.